Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, if you would turn please with me to Esther chapter 4. We are in Esther chapter 4. We've been moving through this book of the Bible. I've been enjoying it quite a bit. Ideally, if we could have, we would not have stopped at the end of chapter 3. We would have just kept moving right on through. Um, But actually, the material of chapter 3 goes all the way to chapter 9. It's all all sorted together. So we could have spent together, if you wanted, 14 hours. But I I get the impression sometimes you don't want to sit here for 14 hours on a Sunday morning. Um, But that would have been ideal. When we go over to Nepal, we uh, are teaching these uh, pastors' conferences. And we will do an entire book in two and a half days. And let me tell you, just sitting there for two and a half days in the context of something you learned a half hour ago, you grasp it. You begin to understand it. So it would be ideal if we could gather together and study uh, the entire book of Esther at one time together or in a weekend or something. Uh, But obviously our time is limited on Sunday mornings. So the last time we were together, if you weren't here, it was two weeks ago, maybe you have forgotten. What we see is that chapter 3 ends with the Jewish people in a very precarious position. So it's in chapter 3 that we're introduced to this official. His name is Haman. If you're playing along in the game, whenever his name is mentioned, you should be booing or whatever, as the Jews do when they celebrate the Feast of Purim. Uh, Haman is a Persian official, and he is going to set his sights on the Jewish people. It tells us in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And so this fellow Haman, he goes on to become the prime minister, if you will, of this world-ruling empire, second to the king. As we see, one of the requirements that the king uh, required is that people would bow down to Haman. So we see in chapter 3, verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Now, this is more than a slight head bow, you know, this is more than a curtsy of some sorts. This is bowing down to the point of actually worshiping this individual, as the Persians believed that their uh, rulers were also gods to some degree. And so here is this man, people are bowing down to the whole nation, the whole empire, bowing down and worshiping him, except for one guy, as it says there at the end of verse 2, chapter 3, but Mordecai did not bow down nor would he pay homage. And so he wouldn't even give a head nod. And it's probably speaking to, I can't worship you, I'm a Jew. We worship one and only one. But the idea of paying homage is, I can't respect you. I'm a Jew and you're an Agagite. And our people have been at war with one another or at enmity with one another for hundreds of least years, if not thousands of years. And so he will not worship him and he will not bow down to him. And so despite the fact that the whole world will, the fact that one man won't, infuriates Haman. And as we see there in verse 5, and this is review, verse 5, it says that Haman was filled with fury because Mordecai would not bow down. And so Haman's plan is, look, I'm the prime minister. I can do whatever I need to do, whatever I want to do. This king doesn't, he gives me so much freedom, so much liberty. And so his plan is that Mordecai should be executed. But not just Mordecai should be executed, Mordecai's family should be executed. And not just Mordecai's family should be executed, but the entire race of the Jewish people should be executed. Do you think that's a bit extreme? 
You think that's going a little bit overboard to get even with someone? And so he decides the entire race of the Jews, it says there in verse 6, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews. All of them would have to go. That's the only thing that would satisfy this man. It's a genocidal rage is what he has. And so with that rage, he goes to the king. He petitions the king for a decree that will give him permission, uh, the authority to do what he wants to do. It orders the death of all the Jews. I find it so interesting that Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, doesn't even ask who we're talking about. I would just like to kill all of these people. Okay, sounds good. How many of them are there? What did they do? Did anybody else witness this? You know, none of those types of questions. Just if you think that's the right thing to do, then do it. And remember, the Jews had over 2 million or more people. We're not talking about 30 people, you know, in some back alley or something. We're talking to millions and millions of people. Maybe some have estimated up to 10 million Jews that he just has given permission without a single question to execute. Verse 13 of chapter 3 tells us that the day is set. It's the 13th day of the 12th month. That's in the Jewish calendar, the month of Adar. And that brings us to where we left off. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter into the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and with weeping and with lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, I would like us to try to put ourselves into the place of Mordecai. It was because of Mordecai's righteous stand. I cannot worship another and I cannot pay this man respect. Our people can't do that. And it was because of his righteous stand that his people now face what is before them, the decree of their destruction. And so no wonder in verse 1 we learn that he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. When you would tear your clothes in that way, you might rip them apart or whatever. You would sprinkle on your head um, the ashes and so on. Doing so symbolized mourning. It symbolized repentance and it symbolized a crying out to God. And so here you have Mordecai tearing his clothes, he's mourning, he's repenting, not in the sense of that he did something wrong, but he's repenting of the circumstances that they wouldn't be what they are. And so he's tearing his clothes, he's putting on the sackcloth, and in doing so I can't help but think that as Mordecai is mourning the fate of all of his brethren, to some degree what I wonder is if Mordecai is blaming himself. If Mordecai is looking at this and saying, you know, ultimately, this is all my fault. Because I wouldn't bow the knee. Because I wouldn't go along. Do you think other Jews bowed the knee to Haman? I bet you they did. But Mordecai wouldn't. And because Mordecai didn't, his people are now facing these particular consequences. And I wonder if he begins to wrestle with whether or not he had done the right thing. Considering the outcome of what he had done. And no doubt, if he's like us, No doubt the enemy begins to work overtime to assault him with doubts, with thoughts of self-condemnation regarding his, quote, little stand for righteousness. No doubt thoughts began to come into his mind. Oh, you think you're so holy, don't you? Well, what do you think of your little stand for self-righteousness now? Not the best idea, was it? You thought you were so good. And maybe you've been there. You take a stand at work. 
for truth and for justice, for righteousness. And you take this stand expecting to be rewarded for doing so. And the next thing you do, you find yourself on the bad side of your supervisor who wishes you would just get along with everyone else. Can't you just go along like everybody else is? Why do you have to take your little stand for righteousness? Now you're not on the ends with your supervisor and you're feeling the consequences of your little stand for righteousness. Perhaps some of you have been there. Maybe you've been in a circumstance where you speak up in support of the right thing to do amongst your crowd of friends. And you would expect everyone to look at you and say, well, you're such a noble guy. I wish I was more like you. I wish I was brave enough to take a stand. But instead, what you hear is the condemnation of everyone coming against you and the glaring looks and perhaps the words about how you're so self-righteous and so on and so forth. I think one of the hardest things about what Mordecai had to do or did do and dealing with the ramifications of his decision to take a stand for righteousness is that his stand and the effects of that stand not only impact him, but it impacts other people as well. You see, people he loves. And so, for instance, if you're married, maybe you have children, and you take a stand at work that costs you your job or that costs you that promotion, now you're not only affecting you, but you're affecting your whole family. And the reality is that ratchets up the pressure. And then the self-doubt and the questioning comes in. Lord, did I do the right thing? Lord, did I hear you correctly? Who do I think I am anyway to take such a stand? Lord, I should have just gone along with everyone else. Sometimes we'll say things to ourselves like, Lord, if I tried to obey you, how come you're not honoring that obedience? How come you're not blessing my family by taking a stand for righteousness? And what I'd like to point out in this passage is this, that it's important to take note that just because Mordecai does the right thing does not mean that life will necessarily go smoothly for him from this point on. You see, I think we have this idea in our Christianity that if I do the right thing, it's going to be smooth sailing here on the earth. This, home, this place is not your home. And many times, choosing to do the right thing will put you square into the, what do they call those things? Crosshairs of the enemy. And choosing to do the right thing will bring more problems in your life, so to speak. And so, please keep that in mind. Haman likely would have never even taken notice of Mordecai had he just bowed the knee with everybody else. But because he took this stand for righteousness as God directed him, he brought all this stuff on him. And the reality is this, as the Lord leads us, we must be prepared for the possible ramifications that come with that stand. And Mordecai's experiencing that. And so, clothed now with sackcloth and ashes, he begins to weep. As we see there, he wails the fate of the Jewish people. Verse 1 says that he, uh, he does so with a loud and a bitter cry. It tells us that he makes his way to the city gate. He's not allowed to go into sort of the, uh, the palace area there, maybe sort of like an open area. Not, so he goes up to the city gate, presumably still mourning, still wailing. People are taking notice of it. Notice verse 3, he's not the only one weeping and wailing. Verse 3 says, And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Remember, the empire expanded out 7.5 million square miles, 127 provinces. 
And so wherever that decree goes, word comes to the Jewish people and there's great mourning among the Jews because a death sentence is upon each one of them. Every Jew will be executed this time next year. Remember, it was about 11 and a half months away. And so we know the decree cannot be altered. That's part of the rules of the Persian Empire. Remember in Daniel, we read that. It said that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be revoked. There's a law that says the Jews are going to be killed on the 13th day of the, the last month, 12th month. That's what's going to happen. Short of a miracle, the Jewish race is as good as exterminated. Now what's interesting to note is that you see there the Jewish people, they weep. It says in the verse, they fast, they mourn, and they lament. What we don't see anywhere is that they pray. Now, they may have prayed, but the text doesn't say that they prayed. It seems as if the Jewish people have resigned themselves to their fate, and they begin to mourn that fate. Why bother praying? It's happening. What's happening is happening. We're going to be executed. And so they weep, they fast, they mourn, they lament, but... I think it's telling that it doesn't say they prayed. Let's continue. Verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. That is about Mordecai. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So you have the whole empire thrown into disarray. The Jews because of the death sentence. The non-Jews because what is going on? Jews have been here for many years and they've been good citizens, quote-unquote, of the captivity. And so nobody knows what is going on, why the hostility. Esther is in the palace, isolated from all that is going on. She doesn't know, but she begins to hear that her uncle, her father, really, in so many ways, her uncle is outside and he's in mourning and he's wailing. And so she sends an aide to go find out. Somebody says to her, Queen, something's wrong with your uncle. He's outside. He looks like a fool. He's acting like a fool. He's weeping and he's wailing. Something is going on. And that news troubles her, it says in verse 4. And as we read there, she is deeply distressed, still not fully knowing what is going on, just that her uncle is in mourning in this particular way. She sends to him instructions that he should stop mourning. We read there in verse 4, she sends garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. I, I find that interesting. She doesn't really know what is going on, just how he's responding, that he's in mourning, and she sends him word, you should stop mourning. Well, she doesn't even know why he's mourning. The Bible says it is appropriate at times to mourn. You're familiar with the song, those you hippies from the 60s or whatever, you know it. Well, they stole that song from the Bible. And there in the Bible we learn, it says, for everything there is a season and there is a time for every matter of under heaven. I hope those, that, that band, what was it called, the birds, 
They should not have gotten paid for that song because they stole it word for word from the Bible. Maybe the music part, but definitely not the words. But everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And so here is Mordecai. He is mourning, perhaps appropriately, perhaps not appropriately, but she doesn't know. And yet she says to him, you should stop mourning. She sends him a set of clothes. She said, come on, let's go shopping. Let's get you something new. Let's take your mind off of these things. Put some new clothes on. I find it interesting because these new clothes would sort of come as a covering over his distress, over his mourning. And you know, I think that's what a lot of people try and do with their mourning. And so people are going through something and we say, come on, let's go to the amusement park. We can forget about it. Well, maybe the more appropriate thing is to not forget about and to deal with it and to sit in mourning. And so there are some that will go perhaps to the amusement park. Others, maybe like Esther here, will say, hey, let's go shopping. We'll go out and get some new clothes. Take your mind off of it. We'll go out and get a new gadget. Go to the Apple store. We'll get you something nice. I remember when I was a kid, my brother was away, and I was home for a period. I was like 10 or something. And I was bored out of my mind in the backyard. And I was just sort of moping around and all this. And my mom looked at me, and she was like, you poor pitiful kid. She said, come on, let's go get an ice cream cone. So we went over here to Carvel ice cream, and she was, that's probably my eating problem now. She was masking my problems over there. So anyhow, um, then I go in, I get my ice cream cone, I step out into the street, right here on Olden Avenue. And my, it fell off onto the ground. So anyhow, maybe we can just, and you know, some people self-medicate, as you know. You know what, I'll, I'll numb the pain. That doesn't, none of those things deal with the issue. You know, most of us would say, well, you can't self-medicate. You can't numb the pain. You can't go get drunk to pass it away. But we're totally okay with going shopping or going and getting, you know, a new gadget or something like that or whatever. It doesn't deal with the issue and it doesn't solve the problem. All it would, no, no, pick, put this together. Let's say Mordecai put on his brand new tuxedo that she sent to him. You know what that would leave him being? The best dressed hanging victim in the nation that's all it would have accomplished he would have been a guy that would be executed in a tuxedo it wouldn't have dealt with the problem and so Mordecai he doesn't bite verse 4 it says he sends the clothes back to Esther he would Esther he would not accept them now she realizes all right something's a little more serious it seems the custom would not allow her or it says the custom would not allow her to go out there to find Mordecai, and so she sends a representative. As it says there, she sends Hathak out to him. She orders Hathak, go find out from Mordecai what is exactly going on here. Hathak, verse 6, goes out there, inquires as to what it is, and then finally in verse 7, Mordecai explains to Hathak all that has happened. Explains everything that is going on. He tells about the king's command that all the king's servants should bow to the new prime minister, Haman. He speaks of the fact that how his Jewish faith, would, faith wouldn't allow him to do so. And how that gets him in trouble with Haman. How Haman comes up with a plan to kill off all the Jewish people. He even goes into the details of the sum of money that Haman promises to deposit into the king's treasury when probably all of that property is seized from the Jewish people. He gives them the entire story, the full story, start to finish. And then in verse 8, he gives them a copy of the written decree. 
I sort of imagine, you remember those wanted posters they used to staple? You know, like nowadays, if you lose your dog or whatever, they staple it. Lost dog or whatever? The, the wanted posters on the, uh, the telephone poles that he rips one off and he says, here it is, give it to her. And so she goes in with this, or he goes in with this written decree, explains it, shows it to Esther. And notice Mordecai also there in verse 8, commands her, remember he's like her dad, commands her to go to the king and beg for the lives of the Jewish people. Go in, represent the Jewish people, beg for the lives before the king. Now previously, he instructed Esther not to mention that she was Jewish. Now he tells her to make it fully known and to intercede on her behalf. And so verse 9, Hathak, he goes, he gives all of that information to Esther. Verse 10, then Esther spoke to Hathak, commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servant and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death except to one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response is, really, I can't go to the king. No one's allowed to go to the king unless the king summons that person to come to them. She also begins, she adds in that she hasn't been there for a month. The king hasn't summoned me for an entire month to come in. And we don't know, again, this is about seven years from the beginning of the story. We don't know if something transpired during that time that either the king had just grown bored with Esther or she had done something that made him mad and he didn't want her there. But her point is simply, I can't go unless he calls me and he hasn't called me for over a month. And so come up with plan B because it's not going to work. Notice she also points out in verse 10 that anyone that does go uninvited faces the penalty of death. And so Mordecai, verse 12, and so on, he picks up on that. It says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them the reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And then he says, and who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, Mordecai knows the possible ramifications of his request. But notice what he says in verse 13. He says, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He says, look, you can do something and possibly die, or you can do nothing and definitely die. You can do something and possibly die, or you can do nothing and definitely die. Mordecai says to her through the servant, look, don't think that just because you're in the palace that you're going to escape this decree to exterminate the Jewish people. And then note, I think verse 14 is a very significant statement. He adds this, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And then he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's faith is fully on display here. Mordecai reveals his absolute confidence that whether or not Esther steps up or not, deliverance will come, underline that word will, will come for the Jewish people. 
I'm reminded of the confidence that the patriarch David demonstrated. You remember back in the book of Genesis, he was instructed to offer up his son Isaac. It says very clearly in the text, his only son Isaac. I'll read it to you. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham is told to offer his son Isaac, his only son. The long-awaited son of the promise. They had waited 25 years, he and his wife Sarah, for this particular baby. Through Isaac, the Lord promised that he would bring a great offspring, but yet Isaac had no children. Through Isaac, the Lord promised to make a great nation of people, and yet he was just this young person with no kids. Through Isaac, the Lord promised to bless the whole world, and that through him the Messiah would ultimately come forth. And now the Lord wants Abraham to offer up the childless Isaac as a sacrifice. Now think about it. You've read the story, but stop and think about it. That doesn't make any sense. Lord, you have all these promises. If I do what you're asking me to do right now, those promises cannot come about. That doesn't really make any sense. But Abraham, based on his absolute certainty that God is faithful and that God can be trusted to keep his promises, he essentially pulls off. He said, well, it doesn't make any sense, but that's not my problem. It's your problem, God. He pulls back with absolute confidence that God is going to do what God said he would do, and he responds in obedience. He gets ready to offer up his son Isaac. And the Lord ultimately stops him and said, I really didn't want you to offer your son Isaac, but I needed to know that you were willing to offer your son Isaac. We get some insight into what Abraham was thinking. Hebrews chapter 11, it says this. It says, By faith Abraham... When he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Notice verse 19, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham was so confident that God was going to keep his promises toward the Jewish people as they pertained to this young man Isaac that he would go so far as to conclude that God would even raise Isaac from the dead if need be in order to keep his promises. That's a lot of faith. We, we sit here and we're like, well, lots of people get raised from the dead. And we can kind of name, you know, there was the little girl and there was the little boy and there was Lazarus, you know, whatever. Okay, it's not that strange or whatever. But in Abraham's day, nobody had ever been raised from the dead. In the 2,000 years of history, nobody had ever been raised from the dead during that time period. And yet he believes that God can do that if God needs to do it or something else. God's going to do something because I trust God at his word. Notice, it's not Abraham's faith that raises Isaac back from the dead, or would raise Isaac back from the dead, but it's the one to whom Abraham places his faith in. He is so confident that God is going to do what God said he was going to do, that he entrusts himself to God to accomplish what God will need to accomplish. He's not confident in his own ability, but he's confident in God's ability. And I think similarly, back in our study of the book of Esther, Mordecai is so confident that God will do what he said he would do regarding the Jewish people that he can boldly declare 
to Esther that deliverance, and again, underline the word if you haven't, will come for the Jewish people. Mordecai is so confident that God will not allow the Jewish people to be exterminated. He says to Esther, look, if you keep silent at this time, God's going to raise somebody else up. Because God will not allow his people to be exterminated. But he says to him, but you and your family will perish. Absolute confidence in God. But notice, I want you to notice something else in verse 14. He also adds, who knows whether thou art coming to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's how the King James, which I memorized the verse in, says it. Who knows whether thou art coming to the kingdom for such a time as this. As I said earlier, it's been six or seven years since Esther most unexpectedly had become queen. Certainly not the course of life that she would have expected. I think we can say with certainty, you're like, well, she's the queen. I think we can say with certainty she wouldn't have chosen this life if she could go back and do it over. It wasn't that great to be the queen. As you can see, she's not even allowed to go in and see her husband uh, unless summoned to come in there. It's not as ideal as we might think it would be. She was a slave girl in a foreign empire at the whims of a despot king. That was her life, even though she had this title of being the queen. And so back then, as six or seven years ago, as she enters into this beauty contest, her uncle, her father, as we've been saying, says, go ahead and do it. Submit yourself to it. She submitted herself to sort of the current of life, where life might take her. She went to the place here of the beauty contest, not knowing exactly the answer to the question that a lot of people struggle with. And the question is just simply why? Lord, why? Why would you have me be pointed out in this way? Why would you have me have to enter this beauty contest? Why would you have me win this thing? Why am I in this palace? And these questions, God, you maybe have asked them, God, why am I here? God, why are you allowing this? You might make the statement, God, I don't understand your purposes. I imagine many of us have said those things from time to time in our walks with Christ. And for the first time in seven years, seven years is a long time to be asking the exact same question, God, why? God, why are you doing what you're doing? I remember I did it for like four months. And I finally remember saying to God, and this is terrible, but saying, God, I don't like what you're doing. And I'm not sure I like you right now, is what I remember saying. Just a very open, honest prayer. Was, I think the first time, I was about four years in the Lord, first time I really prayed an honest prayer to the Lord. Just saying, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, and I'm not sure I like it. Well, I know I don't like it. And so here, for the first time in seven years of uncertainty, of that oft-repeated question, she is finally starting to get an answer. Again, the Lord might be saying to her, why are you here? Well, you're here for such a time as this. Why did I allow all of this? I allowed it because I raised you up to be my instrument that would deliver the Jewish people. She said earlier, I don't understand your purposes. You don't understand my purposes. You will very shortly in my timing. Now, I appreciate Mordecai's response because I think it speaks to me as a, as a father and even as a pastor of a congregation. Mordecai, he expresses both a confidence and a humility all at the same time. 
Notice again in uh, verse 14, he says to her, deliverance will rise. That's his statement of confidence. But he also says there in the verse, for who knows whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this. That's his statement of humility. There's a distinct reason why Mordecai can express absolute confidence in one situation, in the same verse, and measured uncertainty in the other situation here. And that's because it's what he's placing his confidence in. And so in the first instance here where he says deliverance will rise, that's the absolute confidence because he knows that deliverance will not ultimately be the result of something that he or Esther or any other man or woman could do, but it's going to be because of what God does. Because God had declared his purposes for his people, Mordecai is absolutely certain that God will accomplish those purposes. So what we see is he remains supremely confident in God and his word. And so without equivocation, he can boldly declare that deliverance will rise. Bold. Absolutely confident. But at the same time, Mordecai, he speaks with a mark of humility there. Because though he knows what God is going to do, it would be presumptuous of him to state exactly how God is going to do it. What God is going to do. That makes sense so far? Are you with me? So Mordecai, he might think he sees how God is going to accomplish his purposes. But we all know God's ways are beyond our ways. And so it would cross a line into arrogance and presumption to say exactly how God is going to do what God is going to do. And I appreciate this so very much because supremely confident in God and His Word and cautiously reserved regarding Himself and His limited understanding. And I believe there's a lesson there for us. We do not need to shy away from preaching the Word of God boldly. We do not need to shy away from that. It's not arrogant and it's not presumptuous for us to declare what the Word of God declares. Where we do need to exercise caution is in those areas where the Lord has not provided specifics. Now, I'm all for hearing the voice of the Lord and for acting according to what we believe the Lord is directing, but I think it's important for us in humility to make sure that we leave room in our walks with God for where, we'll quote George Bush, we might mishear the Lord. I'm much more comfortable with someone that comes to me and says, hey, I feel like the Lord is directing me in this. Would you pray with me about that? as opposed to someone coming and saying, thus says the Lord. Now, we know the Lord has spoken to his prophets in the past. But we also know that there are many people that have been confused by just some of their own thoughts. And so this idea of being cautious with what we believe that we might be hearing, we are supremely confident in God and his word, but we are cautious when it comes to our ability to hear and to know the way in which the Lord will carry out the specifics of his plan. Mordecai says here, who knows whether this is the very reason you were brought into the kingdom. This is the very reason you went through all that you went through. This is the answer to that question you've been asking for the last seven years, if not longer. That's the first thing that I take notice. Supremely confident in God's word, cautious in his ability to to hear and understand the specifics of what the Lord might be doing. Second thing that I value about Mordecai is he demonstrates a very healthy balance in his understanding of the sovereignty of God. God is going to do what God is going to do. And also the responsibility of man. Now there are some people that want to have debates about this as to whether it's one or the other. You better pick. 
Do you believe in the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man? Pick one. Well, the Scripture picks both. The Scripture teaches that God is sovereign of these things, but that we have a responsibility. And we see an example of that here with Mordecai. He knows that God is going to do what God is going to do. But what a lot of people do with that is they sit down on their nice leather chair, they put their feet up, and they watch for the show to see what God is going to do when the reality is God says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you need to get up and go do it. That he involves us in the process. And so what Mordecai does is he makes himself available for God to work through him. I believe God is going to save who God is going to save. And I I think you do that, you believe that as well. I'm sure most of you do, if not all of you in here. But that doesn't mean that I sit back and do nothing. What it means is I go and I share the gospel with others. And I don't do that well enough, to be frank with you. It's easy to just sit back and say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. But he involves us in the process. And so we know that God is going to accomplish his purposes in our day. It's our responsibility to make ourselves available for God to work. Not just declare, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. On the contrary, to work all the more diligently that God might use us in that process. So that's the second thing that I appreciate about him. So the first one is confidence in God's word, humility in his ability to understand all things. The, the second one has to do with this idea about the sovereignty and the responsibility of man. And the third thing, and this one's challenging for me. I was curious if I was going to get through it uh, perfectly well. But it's challenging for me as a dad. And that is this. I promised myself I wouldn't cry. Mordecai's willingness to entrust a loved one into the care of God. Mordecai knows the stakes of asking Esther to go in to see the king, that she might be executed. If she goes into the king and he's in a bad mood, or he responds in to Esther's unsolicited arrival in a negative way, the king can order her to be executed on the spot. And so he knows the stakes. And yet with that knowledge, he encourages her to go in. He encourages her to do what he has asked her to do. And so here we are. We sit here 2,500 years earlier. As I said earlier, try to put yourself in the place of Mordecai. Let's not pretend that this is some easy decision for him. Oh, why won't you just go do it? That's not what's going on with Mordecai. He knows the stakes of what he is asking her to do. This is the young woman that he raised as his daughter. He knows what could potentially happen, and with that knowledge, he sends her in. Now, Esther certainly closes out this chapter as sort of the heroine for her brave decision to go and do despite the risk. But I think at the same time, I think it behooves us to take notice of Mordecai's great step of faith. And his great step of faith is that he releases his daughter, his niece, into the care of our Lord. You see, it's not just the one that goes that needs to exercise faith. But just as much it's the one that stays that has to exercise faith as well. And so parents, if God calls your child to something potentially at great risk to themselves. That's the part that gets me. Are you willing to exercise the faith needed to encourage your child to heed the call? Many parents aren't, Christian parents aren't willing to do that. You're not going anywhere. You're going to stay here. You're going to get a good job. 
You're going to get a house. You're going to have some nice children. Hopefully they'll drive you crazy, but make me as grandmom happy and granddad happy. You're going to live a good life. You'll be a contributor and a servant at church. You're going to live out your days. You're going to die. That's how many Christian parents in America want to raise their Christian children. But what if your child was called to go somewhere and minister at great risk to themselves? Do you have the faith? Are you willing to exercise the faith to let them go, to follow the calling of God? I'm not sure I am. Mordecai here is an example for us. You know, I think of us as a church. The Lord might be calling someone in our church today to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, to do something that doesn't make any sense and that may not necessarily be safe and may ultimately cost them their life. Are we willing to let them go and support them in what the Lord might be calling them to do? Well, Mordecai here, he responds, he encourages Esther to place her trust, and he himself placed his trust, in places his trust in the Lord. Verse 15, Esther told them to go back to Mordecai. Remember, there's a go-between. It says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, it doesn't seem Esther needs a whole lot of convincing, does it? Doesn't seem it. I think her response in verse 16, where she says, all right, I'll go, and if I perish, I perish, I think it offers a little bit of clarification to her objection in verse 11. I think if we just read 11 by by itself, We might walk away, which she said, I'm not going in there. I'll die if I go in there. I don't necessarily think that's what she's saying based on how quickly she is persuaded in verse 16. I think actually, do you remember when Mary received that vision from the angel and the angel came and said, you're going to be with child and he's the Messiah, Jesus, and so on. And her response is, how can these things be? I've never been with a man. Well, Mary's not objecting there. She doesn't understand there. Look, I went to health class, you know, she said. I know the process. I understand what's going on here. And so she asked for clarification. And when the angel gives it to her, she believes. And I think that's what's happening here with Esther. She just simply says, I can't go to the king. I haven't been summoned. And if, and if, you don't, if you're not summoned and you go, you'll be killed. How's that going to help the cause? I think she's just raising a logical objection here to the circumstance. It doesn't work that way, Mordecai. And then Mordecai explains to her, no, you need to go and take great risk to yourself. And she says, all right, I'll do it. Get everybody to fast. Let's presumably pray. And so she realizes now at this point, she embraces the cause, verse 16. She realizes, I've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this, she says. She's getting an answer to that question of why. And I I just want to encourage you, if you've been calling out to God for an extended period of time, keep calling out to Him. Whether you get your answer or not, keep your eyes on Him and His goodness and His faithfulness. Rest yourself into His care, whether you have your answer or not. Your answer will come at some point in time, likely. 
You must continue to entrust yourself to him. She does what I think the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. She realizes that her life is not her own. You remember when Paul says that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you were not your own, you were bought with a price, and so glorify God with your body. In another place, Paul would speak to the believers in Ephesus, and he says this, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and my ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Now that does not mean that Paul had some death wish or anything like that. Or that Paul would unnecessarily put himself in harm's way. But what it means is that he had submitted himself into God's care. And if that meant his, that his life would be used and, and come to an end through martyrdom, well, then he was willing to do that. If that meant, much like John, that he would live out his days until um, you know, his old age and he would die of those causes in that regard, well, then that's what it was. His life would be that which God was calling it to be, and his life would go that to place, that, that place to where God was calling it to go. And again, if that many ended up as a martyr, then that's what it meant. My life is not my own. It's not precious to me. And really, that's what Esther is saying here. She says, if I perish, I perish. May the Lord use my life, she says. And I believe that's what God would have for us as we live out our days. You probably aren't going to be martyred for the faith. But you can still live your life as if you realize and believe that your life is not your own. And I, my prayer for me, you, is that the Lord would give us that sort of courageous faith to step out in that sort of faith. Amen, friends? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. It's good for us to have, Lord, uh, examples, godly examples that we can look to. We can be encouraged by their stand of faith and learn certainly lessons from them. And Father, I'm just grateful that your Holy Spirit can now take this, uh, this message, these words that we've read, this story that we've looked at, and you can begin to make application, Lord, into the deep recesses. Where every one of us is different, every one of us is going through something different. Lord, some of us have been fighting the call to go. Lord, some of us have been fighting the call to lay down our lives in every instance. Some of us have been fighting the call of our children to go. So Lord, we ask that you would use your word to minister to our hearts. Teach us, grow us in the faith. We submit ourselves to you this morning in a fresh way. And Lord, how good it is to be gathered with a bunch of other believers that are likely doing the same thing. Lord, that our mutual faith might encourage each of us to run the race unhindered, Lord. Take off anything that is ensnaring us that we might run this race, Lord, with our eyes firmly fixed on you. We ask in Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.